note before today's show, we recorded this episode before the news broke that Theo Epstein would be stepping down as the president of Cubs baseball operations. So next week's episode will be devoted entirely to looking ahead at Jed Hoyer's tenure, taking the reins from Theo, and looking back at the Theo Epstein era. But for now, enjoy Cup of Cubbies Blues 100th episode recorded in full in the Theo Epstein era. Welcome to Cup of Cubby Blue, your baseball off-season home for Cubs news, updates, and banter. We are the official podcast of Bleed Cubby Blue, and you can find us wherever you get your podcast by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue. My name is Sarah Sanchez. I write about all things off-season for Bleed Cubby Blue. Hi, guys. Andy Cruz, Vanasek, and hey, it's, a, it's another week of fall and one week closer to spring. I guess that's one way to look at it. <laughs> That's true. Um, although the fact that you're already counting down to spring makes Andy, are you going to be okay? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I tend to look for the positive in and everything, and that's the only thing I got right now. So we're just going to roll with it. All right, uh, I I can also roll with that, and I definitely appreciate where you're going there. I just I, I don't know. It's gonna it's gonna be a long winter if you're already counting the days to spring. <laughs> hey, you know. Give me what I can take. I, 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 it, it is what it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Especially because well, we got Thanksgiving in less than a week. I got another kid's birthday and we have Christmas. Lots of things that I don't know that people are necessarily looking forward to this year because of the condition of our country. But there is a, there is brighter days ahead. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> um. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get into how I feel about the optimism of things ahead or not. Um, but I will say this is our 100th episode. So I guess I'm happy about that. How are you feeling about the 100th episode of the podcast? Yeah, that's actually really, um, really cool. And I mean, I, I realized this, I think after we recorded the last one and I shared it and I had meant to push this a little bit more because I wanted to get some more input from folks on Twitter. But um, yeah, I mean, life happens, you know, I've had a few things going on over the past week and a half. So um, just haven't been on social media as much as I would have liked to been sharing things and getting feedback from people. But 100 is huge. That's a big deal. And we've been doing this now since last May. So um, I days ago. We made it through two Mays. Yes. Sorry. I'm, I'm thinking 2018. Yes. May yeah, yeah. 2018. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a fun ride and 100. I feel like we're just like kind of figuring out our off season groove and, and going to be able to hopefully have a much closer to normal season next year. Yeah, we'll see. I am looking forward to seeing what we find out about the season, particularly now that there's news that there's a vaccine that is apparently 90% effective, although the distribution plans for that and production capacity and a whole bunch of other stuff, still outstanding, but that's obviously better than where we were at the start of last season. Well, and didn't I read somewhere too that baseball is going to be a lot more aggressive in 2021 about getting fans in stadiums? Um 
I thought I did see that. Maybe that was something. Oh, else. tell me more. I hadn't read that. So um, I thought it was baseball. I could be wrong. Um, but I know sports in general are going to be more aggressive next year. I do know that. Um, I have read several several different articles. I know one on Yahoo for sure that um, they're definitely want to put things in place. I think I read a basketball team is willing to invest millions of dollars to test every um, every fan that is allowed into their arena. I want to say it was maybe Golden State. I could be wrong. Um, but anyways, so that's a good sign that teams are willing to do that To I mean, obviously, they're investing money to just have it come back to them in revenue. Um, but that's, that's a good sign and, and definitely a sign that people are, um, you know, they care about the general public's health, but at the same time, they know that, you know, like we've said a zillion times, it's really nice to have something to kind of take our mind off of things. So, and that's kind of what sports is to a lot of people. It's kind of a break from your day in, day out. So it's nice to know that those things are being taken serious and that, you know, that there's teams that are serious about getting us back in their stands at, in a safe environment. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, we were talking about this a couple weeks ago on the Enrico Palazzo podcast, but I I think that we both agreed that teams are just going to have to be a lot more, you know, it's not going to be packed stadiums and no masks and anything like that, but there probably will be fans in the vast majority of stadiums by the time baseball comes back, hopefully knock on some form of wood that I'm not close to at the moment on schedule next April. Yeah. And I think we saw that a little bit too with playoffs this year. Um, You know, a lot of people were like, ah, there's fans in the stadiums, you know, like it didn't feel like the safest thing, I guess. And it felt a little forced, but I know it was a lot of family and a lot of, um, like personal tickets that players had given out that sort of thing, but they were allowing fans in. So you know that they had to have approved protocol to get folks into the stadium. And you hope that they can only expound upon those and, and, you know, do, do something similar to have more of the general public be able to consume baseball live in a safe way. Yeah. It's something I've noticed as I've been watching some college football, because as people who follow me on Twitter know, I'm a huge Notre Dame fan. And it's, it's interesting, like the stadiums that it's pretty much state by state, right? The stadiums that allow limited fans in and the stadiums that don't allow anybody in. And so one week they'll be playing and there will be like smatterings of fans here and there. And then the next week they'll be playing and there's nobody in the stands. <laughs> yeah. And I've been consuming a lot of college volleyball because um, there are some teams playing this fall when their actual season now has got pushed back to the spring, but there are, yeah. And I think it's, I don't think it's by state. I think it's by like local governments, like local governing bodies, because um, they're like in Arkansas, a couple different games I saw, and then Alabama, Texas, you know, it was just, it was really dependent on what school the games were being played at, who was allowed in, how many were allowed in. You could tell that there was like pods, like you were allowed to sit with the people you were there, but like they had, Mizzou is one I can think of off the top of my head. They had like tape over seats where you're not allowed to sit here. Um, so, you know, they're, they're definitely going through and counting off seats where, how far away people are from each other. Everybody had masks on. Um, and and when I say everybody had masks on, everybody had masks on. Um, but it was, it was actually very reassuring to see. And I'm, I'm happy that, you know, they're, they're making strides to, to put people in seats and, and get fans, you know, back involved with these sports. 
It is the most 2020 thing ever that you have to clarify. When I say everybody had masks on, I mean like actually everybody had masks on. Well, you and I both know that when you say everybody had masks on, that's not always the case. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So it's the 100th episode. We are looking ahead cautiously, optimistically to actual sports coming back at the end of this long winter. But before we get to that point, There was history-making news in Major League Baseball this week, and Andy, I just have to know, and and for the record, Andy and I have not talked to each other about this yet, so I have no idea what she is about to say. Andy, what was your reaction when Kim Ang was named general manager of the Miami Marlins? Well, for so many reasons, and I'm sure many that we will discuss, my immediate reaction was, it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually looked at my phone. I was like, finally. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. this was supposed to happen a decade ago. Right. Right. For so many reasons. I mean, you know, Kim Ng is already, she's been in Major League Baseball for so long. Um, like I read somebody say, you know, that the talk of her actually becoming a GM had actually died down for a while because it was so hot and heavy for a while. And then all of a sudden it kind of died down because she kept interviewing for jobs and not getting jobs that she was more than qualified for. And it was just such a letdown. And it's like, this is actually never going to happen. And, um, the, you know, another thing, it shouldn't have taken a woman this long to be a GM of a professional sport, a, a, a professional team, um, of any kind. Um, she's the first one. So it shouldn't have taken that long. And not only that, but she's a person of color. I mean, this is just, you know, it's just like one thing on top of another that it should have happened a long time ago, specifically for the reasons that she is more than qualified for this job. And she is going to kick some serious butt in Florida. And I could not be more happy for her. Yeah. To put this in perspective for people, Kim Ang was on people's list to be the first woman manager in MLB when she was like 29, 30 years old. (laughs) Like she was a assistant general manager when she was 29 years old, about 15, 20 years ago, she started popping up on all of these um, lists about like, who's going to be the first woman to crack that glass ceiling. And it had actually been 15 years, years, people since her last interview for a general manager position, because it had just been such a frustrating process. And so she had been working in MLB's central office as a special or a senior vice president for baseball operations. She was doing a lot of work on initiatives to get young people playing baseball and softball in their communities. But imagine needing to be a vice president, a senior vice president in the league before you're deemed qualified to run a team. I just like this just blows my mind. And I just I I keep thinking of her breaking the glass ceiling from above. Well, and to put it in perspective, too. Yes, she's been talked about since she was in her 20s. She's 51. Like she's, you know, it's not like she's 35. And it took that long. She's 51. So she is like, laughing at these people. Like, I think I saw the comparison that Theo was like, born when she was like graduating high school or something crazy and he still managed to like be a GM of a team before her she had been in in the league for decades by the time he had got here like it's just ridiculous to me and it's not like you know she had to 
I don't know. She she was very good at her job. Everybody that worked with her, like if you read anything from people that she, you know, she started with the White Sox as an as an intern, I believe, um, and like worked her way up into assistant director of baseball operations, and you know was with them for a few years. But like you have all these people that have known her and worked with her in some capacity over the years saying such amazing things like it is about time, you know, she's been so good at every position she's held. Like, you know, we all saw this coming. We all knew this was going to happen. You know, thank goodness the Marlins, you know, finally figured this one out, that sort of thing. So it's not like she was having to learn more or she wasn't quite qualified or there was still a little bit more for her to conquer. She had the experience a long time ago. Um, she had enough experience a long time ago to to secure a GM job. She just wasn't getting the opportunity. So thank God she it's about time <laughs> that she finally got this position. And I'm really excited to see what other doors it opens for women and people of color in, in this position, women of color in this position. You know, I mean, it's just it's so exciting to me. And yes, you know, this was definitely something that you know, girls, my daughters, come gather around. We're going to talk about Kim Ang today. So, yeah, that's awesome. You know, you mentioned the Theo thing, and I, I think it's a comp worth noting. And look, and this is no shade to Theo Epstein. Y'all know that Andy and I both love Theo. We think he's great. And my second favorite team is the Red Sox. I love Theo from his Boston days. I definitely love what he did for the Cubs. But it took her longer to gain the experience deemed necessary by the powers that be in Major League Baseball to get this position than Theo, Theo Epstein was younger than 30 when he got the Boston job, right? Like, she has more years of experience than Theo had years on the planet yeah. when he was entrusted with the Red Sox. So it is a wonderful thing. MLB has done something great here. And it is something that should have happened 15, 20 years ago. The quote that really stood out to me when I was researching stuff for the piece that I wrote on this was from Susan Waldman, who was the longtime broadcaster for the Yankees. And when she got the text that uh, Kim had been hired by the Marlins, she called a friend in the Marlins organization because she didn't believe it. And she was like, tell me this is real. And got a message back that it was happening. And Susan Waldman, y'all, was just like, she was just crying all day. Because she didn't think she would be around when it finally actually happened. It had just been so long. So I think that it's one thing to be like celebratory. It's a great thing for baseball. Even Rob Manfred managed to make me like him a little bit based on his reactions here. But let's not pretend it shouldn't have happened 15 years ago. Yeah, it's definitely bittersweet for women. And I, I've seen a lot of mixed reactions on this. And, um, you know, everybody is allowed, every woman that knows anything about baseball, that follows baseball, that has opinions about baseball is allowed to react however they're going to react to this. Because I know, I saw somewhere some people were, I mean, they were definitely excited that it finally happened. But I think it just kind of reaffirms the fact that there wasn't a woman in this position for so long. And not only that, but a woman that was more than qualified. So yeah, I mean, it's every, like I said, every woman is allowed to have the the reaction that they have to this. However they react, that's, you know, totally fair. I'm just really excited that it, it happened, that my daughters are able to see it and that it, this is a stepping stone. Like, you know, we're trying very hard to make progress in areas of, of front office in professional sports for women, for people of color, head coaching jobs, women, 
people of color. So yes, this should have happened. It should be happening more. It should be happening, you know, every day, as far as I'm concerned, there should be new hires coming in people that are qualified that shouldn't be looked down upon because of their gender, because of whatever. But these are the baby steps that need to happen for all of that to happen. So I look at this as forward progress. And I'm very excited that, you know, this is just another glass ceiling that, you know, is shattered from above or below um, by a woman, by a woman of color for, you know, my daughters and everybody else's daughters to see that they can absolutely do whatever they want to do. And especially in sports, you know, because we've been told, I mean, I think between you and I, one of us is told on a daily basis that (laughs) what do we know about sports? Not daily basis, that might be exaggerating, but we're told way too frequently, what do we know about sports? Because we're just a girl, that sort of thing. I mean, those things come up quite a a bit, um, unfortunately. And and this is just one of those things that, sorry, you know, we we actually do know something about sports and, and women can run professional teams, professional baseball teams. Andy, I just have to tell you, one of the first comments on, so when we post an article at BCB, it like goes up on the site, but we also cross post it on Twitter and Facebook and whatever. One of the first comments on my article about Kimang on the Facebook uh, BCB page was, when did she play baseball? And I I didn't even have to respond because almost immediately some dude who follows our site came on and was like, Tell me Theo and Jed's baseball stats. Right, right, (laughs) right. Thank you. Right. I mean, and you know what? It's so funny to me because I, you hear that a lot. Like you hear men say that a lot to, you know, like an Aaron Andrews or a Kay Adams, people that women that know football, you know, well, they couldn't possibly have know anything about football. They don't, they never even played football. Okay. How many fans look at a stadium? How many fans, how many men fans do you think have played football? Like to the level that would could even qualify to be on the same planet as Aaron Andrews and Kay Adams and people like that that just know so much the ins and outs about football. Like it just blows my mind that that is an actual retort from people about <laughs> what these women know about sports. It's just crazy to me. Totally. Yeah. Don't do that. If that's your gut reaction, bite your tongue, <laughs> swallow that reaction. Check yourself. Think about it a little bit. Check yourself. Come up with a different reaction. That's the wrong reaction. Oh, my goodness. Speaking of general manager stuff, moving on a little bit closer to the Cubs, uh, we had noted here, I think last time, maybe before, I'm not sure, that Jason McLeod had interviewed for the Angels general manager position. It does not look like he – well, it not, does not look. He, he did not get that position. Um, he actually dropped out of consideration right before it was announced. That job went to somebody else. So it does not look like – the Cubs front office staff is going to be broken up in a significant way this offseason. It looks like we'll have the last year of Theo Epstein's contract as president of baseball operations, plus his Mary Band, uh, Jed Hoyer, Jason McLeod, same old, same old. What do you think of that? you know, keeping that core front office team together. Yeah, I I think we kind of saw that coming. And I think I alluded to that a little bit when we had the conversation was I just didn't see them um, pulling any of this, um, this group apart uh, prematurely. I just think that everybody is being groomed for a new position or not even a new position, but like to basically um, maybe move up or maybe move laterally. But I, I don't see any of them um, 
Theo the exception, leaving you know this franchise prematurely. I just didn't see that happening, anyways. But you know, he's going out and and just having the experience of interviewing with other teams already shows you how he's thought of. So um, it definitely he's not somebody that I feel like is mentioned uh, as much as he should be. So. Uh, you know, I, I look to see what his future role is with the Cubs, but I definitely see him with the Cubs um, beyond next season. All right. So, and yeah, I agree with all of that. I don't, I don't have a ton, a ton to add there. I think that keeping the core together tells us that we're going to run it back again one more time in 2021. We'll see what the Cubs do. I know we'll have a ton to talk about there as decisions are made on contracts as we get Farther into the quote-unquote hot stove season, which I just don't think is going to be that hot, which we've talked about on this podcast before. But we need to take a quick break for our sponsors. On the flip side, we have a ton to talk about, including the Cy Young Award voting, um, you Darvish taking second in the Cy Young. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll also look at the MVP awards and some news from coaching staff shifts around the league. But first, a quick break for our sponsors. Okay, so you Darvish, as many expected, came in second in the Cy Young Award voting. No shade. Like, I think that's the right answer. I'm not a huge Trevor Bauer fan, but I think you Darvish probably was the second best pitcher in the NL in 2020, albeit abbreviated pandemic baseball season. I will say, though, the dude from Orange County that left Darvish off of his ballot completely is ridiculous. And that was the most... Look, I have no explanation for it other than the guy wanted to create clickbait the next day. He wanted to have a controversial ballot so people would read his column. Congrats, I guess. People read your column. Your column was bad and you should be embarrassed. (laughs) Listen, the best was um, I saw a couple of replies. I read your article, which is great, by the way. Um, and I saw a couple of replies. And the first one I thought was the best. And uh, the guy that was replying to you said, Great article, great write-up, and you just embarrassed the heck out of him. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is the best way to say it because, like, he just did not have good good reasoning behind behind this choice. <laughs> and I think to his exact, um, you know, of course he has to tweet the, his write-up on why he didn't have you Darvish on his um, Cy Young vote was because, or he he made the a guy made a comment and said. You know, it would have been much easier just to say, I'm still mad about 2017. (laughs) And I was like, that is perfect. That is absolutely perfect. And listen, I 100% agree that he was trying to to have attention put on him because everyone good and well knew you Darvish was going to be on every single person with eyes that watched any of his games that he started, looked at any of his stats went over any of the pitches that he had looked at anything involving you Darvish was going to have him on their ballot. So to not have him on their ballot was a huge attention seeking move. Like what can I do to bring attention to me? Because I'm still mad about 2017. Like (laughs) just ridiculous. 100%. And and the explanation was just look, the explanation was just a non-starter. So y'all know I like numbers. I like stats. I play around with the baseball savant numbers all the time. I play around on fan graphs a lot. 
I bring you all our like, you know, who's hot, who's not based on WRC plus all of that jazz. Anytime a new statistic comes out, I read up on it to see if I what what's new about it, what it's capturing that other statistics don't. I'm all for methodologies that are super numbers based. I think we talked about on the show how the gold gloves were all decided based on just the numbers this year that they didn't have any um, eye test or managerial or coach input or anything like that. And the Cubs did super well with that, which is interesting. That's that's interesting and useful. And I'm glad to know that by some type of defensive metric, the Cubs were the best team in baseball in 2020. What J.P. Hornstra, I think is his name, from the OC Register did is not making a decision based on stats. It's cherry picking a statistic, using it when it suits you, and then just being like, eh, never mind, I don't care about it. So his explanation, basically, it was 1,500 words of nonsense. I'll boil it down here, was that he used this stat baseball prospectus. And full disclosure, I've written for baseball prospectus before. Uh, I contributed for them with short relief. No shade to baseball prospectus. They do great work. But he picked a stat that baseball prospectus developed called DRA, which is kind of like ERA, but a little bit better. It's supposed to be um, one of these stats like FIP that tells you what a pitcher would have done absent anything else on the field. And he used that DRA stat, he said, because it showed better statistical consistency than other stats given the shortened season. He also made an argument that that stat and DRC, which is the WRC plus type baseball prospectus stat for those of you following along at home showed systemically that the central divisions, both AL and NL were weaker than the Eastern or Western divisions. Now, I don't know whether that is true or not, by which I mean, like, I'm not sure you can determine that over a 60 game sample size, but I understand the argument at least. However, you can't make that argument and say, this, this is a reason that you Darvish should not be on my ballot and still put Bauer first, <laughs> which is what this dude did. So like, it's not a deal breaker for Trevor Bauer being first, but somehow it moves you Darvish from second to sixth. And the kicker is that the guy that he put in fifth to bump Darvish off his ballot entirely is Devin Williams, who's a reliever for the Brewers who threw in what, what <laughs> league do the Brewers play in Andy? This is so great. Uh the NL Central. Oh, yes. The NL Central. The, the league that's too weak for Darvish to get any – it is bananas, people. Like, you, this is exactly how you do not use stats. This is why there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson says something like, um, you can use statistics to prove anything. 13% of all people know that. And the whole joke is that he's just making it up. Well, congratulations, JP. You just made it up. Talk about cherry picking stats here. Holy cow. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually had to take notes while I was reading his write up. And when I went back to like look at what I wrote down, I still couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and I'm a math person. Like, I don't dig into stats as much as you do, but like, I like the math proponent of it. And it just, it, I, I, it was like seven plus, you know, 4,022 made two. Like, it was just. <laughs> There was just no rhyme or reason for it. it. It just, it was basically cherry picking and it was exactly what this dude replied with. And you should have just said, I'm still mad about 2017 because all in all, that's what it boiled down to. Like, you know, or you didn't like the way that you Darvish wore his socks. Like that would have been a better reason. You know, it just, I don't know. It just felt really, um, really like I'm going to confuse you enough. So you can't question why I didn't have him on my ballot type thing. So 
Um, congratulations. You should be embarrassed. Um, it, it just, you know, anybody with eyes that watched any baseball this year that even watched, you know, ESPN highlights knew that you Darvish should have been on every single ballot and for him to not be on one gentleman from the OC explains a lot. <laughs> totally. This is the last thing I'll say about it. And then I'm done. I promise. But like the, the whole, like, I'm going to use stats, but not those stats, just this stat. And I'm only going to use this stat for four guys, not five guys. And I'm going to use this other standard for the fifth. Guy. It's just insanity. Like I, you, that is not a thing that makes any sense whatsoever as a methodology. And the fact that he put this out there as if it was like a credible argument was just, I, I, it was insulting to my brain. Like I, I couldn't follow it. I was just like, I was reading the article. I was like, the reason I can't follow this is because it doesn't make any sense. This is the most nonsensical explanation for a ballot that I've read in forever. And Andy is exactly right. He's just been like, I don't like you, Darvish. I don't want him on the ballot. The last thing I will say about this is when he tried to justify putting Devin Williams ahead of you, Darvish, because of the quote unquote aesthetic character of Devin Williams change up. Look. There are a lot of things you could say about you, Darvish, but the idea that his pitches are not just aesthetically mind-blowing is not one of them. Like, I, does this guy look at pitching ninja gifts? Like, Darvish has some of the prettiest pitches in the sport. And I say pitches because unlike Devin Williams, he has like 11 of them. Not one. I, I just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, this was, this was very blatant, you know, um, attention seeking behavior. And I'm kind of over that this year. Like, <laughs> like, like <laughs> dude, come on, come on. Use your, use your brain, use your eyes. Stop being a, a, you know, a baby about it. He was definitely in the top three pitchers this season, if not the best. So, and, and, you know, obviously I feel a certain way, but clearly I'm not alone here because you have writers all over picking him in their top five. So dude, come on. <laughs> all right. Moving on to some other awards. Uh, let's talk about the MVP ballots. I want to, I'm going to start with Jose Abreu here. And I know that we probably have some listeners who are not huge White Sox fans, but I think, you know, that Andy and I don't really necessarily feel that much animosity towards the White Sox at this point. I mean, Jose Abreu's reaction to winning the MVP was everything good and wonderful in the world. Like I, he just kind of the way that you could see how much emotion he had been holding in and how much he wanted that recognition. And he just put his head down on his table and it was like, I can't even believe this is happening to me as his friends and family came in, just like cheering for him and trying to like congratulate him. And he couldn't even, it was, he really it like could not even just in that moment. It was so good. I definitely got choked up. I mean, first of all, I'm one of those people that it does not take much for me to cry. Like I cry at, you know, the Amazon commercial that's running right now. So it doesn't take much for me to cry, but to see a grown man, like get emotional like that and definitely like have, you know, you can just feel like the buildup and, and everything else and kind of that release. Like, yeah, I definitely, I, there was definitely some some onions being cut very very near my eyeballs that moment because, um, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, very well deserved. And you know, I know he's a White Sox player, but I mean, it's Chicago. It's Chicago baseball, and I'm sorry, but you know that makes me kind of happy. And the White Sox, 
definitely did not end the year that the way many people projected they would. And I kind of feel like they're in a spot right now with their current manager situation. So yeah, that's a whole nother story, but that's, that's coming up. Right. I'm I'm teasing that. I'm teasing that. Um, But for, you know, for him to have played the way that he played this season, you know, 60 games, 150 games, it doesn't matter. You know, he had a great season. He's worked very hard. He's a leader on that team. I Well-deserved, well-deserved, and definitely somebody that I have no problem rooting for, White Sox player or not. Yeah, I have no problem rooting for Jose Abreu, and that was an outstanding moment. Let's talk about the NL winner for one second, because this is also, I just think, textbook, and I got goosebumps thinking about this. Y'all might remember at the beginning of the season, Freddie Freeman was one of the players who tested positive for COVID-19, and he did not have a mild case of the disease. He was super sick. He actually, once he got better, um, came back, and he was one of the reasons that, was it Nick Markakis said that he wasn't going to play for a bit, and then I think he came back, but he was like, he was so terrified by what he had heard from Freddie Freeman about this disease that it was just, it was just not a risk that he was willing to take. And there's this quote that has stuck with me all season long as I think about the risk of COVID and what it really means where Freddie Freeman talked about laying in bed at night with this like insane fever, like this really high fever and just praying to God that he would not get, that he was not going to die because the fever was so high. And I, I, I can't even talk about it now. Like it's making me choke up. But so for him to go from missing part of the beginning of the season with COVID-19 to go from having such a life-altering experience with it to winning the MVP. That just seems like a storybook ending for pandemic. I mean, and yeah. And the sickness to overcome that and come back and have the season that he had. I love Freddie Freeman anyways. And any of y'all that don't pay attention, he and Jason Hayward are best buds and their story is so great. And to see pictures of them when they were young playing together and how, how they've kind of stuck by each other's side and the stories that they have about each other, you know, that's the one thing I looked forward to when they played each other on Sunday Night Baseball. And I don't think it was this season. It had to have been last season. But they got to tell some really great stories about each other. And I honestly, you know, it wasn't that I disliked Freddie Freeman, but I never really, like, got to know him or like knew anything about him. So after that, I was immediately a Freddie Freeman fan. Obviously he's a very good baseball player, but to know the quality of human being he is too, it just makes it that much easier to like him. And so, yeah, watching him struggle through that at the beginning of the season, because he is a professional athlete, which obviously they are in extraordinary shape to play baseball at the level they play at and the amount that they are expected to do um, what they expect from their bodies and then to have him be sick, you know, kind of show that he's human type thing and, and really be, you know, scared for his life type situation really humanizes him and makes him, you know, feel like one of us, you know, and then to have him go out and have the season he had was just, I mean, yeah, it's such, such a feel good story. Well-deserved, you know, he's, he's somebody that almost consistently is talked about every year for MVP because he's just such a good player. And he means a lot to the team that he's on. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was nice to watch that happen for him, and especially with that story, it was a great um, you know kind of comeback story because you just weren't sure if that was something that was going to linger with him or what. And and you know to watch him play this season, obviously, it, you know it wasn't, but you know it, I just I love Freddie Freeman. I was very happy for this pick. 
Yeah, it's a comeback story that is so much better than the Justin Turner story that wound up being the image that sort of like stuck with people about pandemic baseball. And I don't want to talk too much about Justin Turner. I think we did that already. But Freddie Freeman for the Braves, I mean, he is their Anthony Rizzo in a lot of ways. And he, you know, like you said, um, everything I've ever read or learned about him made me like him more like the Jason Hayward thing. Look, if you're if Jason Hayward is okay with you. You're okay with me. Like I will never like that man is awesome. So it was, it was a nice thing to see. It was a nice comeback. It was a very on point comeback and I thought it was incredible and watching him celebrate was not quite as emotional for me. I'll admit as watching Jose Abreu celebrate, but it was still a great story. The last thing I want to talk about with MVP balloting before we leave, I would be remiss if I did not point out that Ryan Tapera, yes, Ryan Tapera Cubs middle relief Ryan Tapera, not the star of the bullpen by a long shot, received one MVP ballot. And Andy, I laughed so hard. I first of all, I did not believe it. Um, but then I also, I guess, was it Jesse Rogers put Ian Happ as an MVP vote? And somebody said yes. that Ryan and Ian should go have celebratory drinks because <laughs> they both made their way <laughs> on to MVP ballot. And um, I think Ryan Tapera even made a comment that that was you know, that's probably as good as it's going to get for him. <laughs> and I'm like, that's perfect. So, that's perfect. <laughs> totally. So the Ryan Tapera thing is not quite the same as Ian Happ. Ian Happ, in fairness, made it on, onto Jesse Rogers' ballot legitimately. Like, he actually was Jesse Rogers's 10th pick or whatever. Uh, a Cardinals beat writer whose name is escaping me at the moment is who voted for Ryan Tapera. And apparently he meant to vote for Trey Turner. And he accidentally hit Tapera and did not realize it until he had submitted his ballot, which is, thank you, Card. You know what? I'm, I'm going to thank St. Louis. Thank you, St. Louis. <laughs> it's the nicest thing you've ever done for us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I for sure had to remind my husband that it was a St. Louis beat writer that did that. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just so on brand 2020, isn't it? Just so on brand. I do want to mention something else, though, that was not on our regularly scheduled programming notes. But um, also one thing that I did not realize there was a new award for Team Gold Glove. Oh, right. Yeah. And lo and behold, the Chicago Cubs won this. Like, I was like, so thrilled by this. This is this is good. I like this. Yeah, so this is what I was talking about a little bit, um, but admittedly, we didn't cover this on the last show because I think it all happened in the interim time period. The So they did the gold gloves this year with just stats, right? They use Sabres. I'm blanking on the statistic off the top of my head right now, but it's basically an index of like who's the best defensive player uh, at each position. And the Cubs had seven nominees by that index, which was by far the most from any team. And so when they tallied it, because they ta they tallied the team award, which is new this year, it's the first time it's ever been given out. When they tallied the team award, the Cubs came out on top there too. And, and that was not a foregone conclusion. It's theoretically possible that you could have a team that has like five or six players who are in that conversation, but who just have better numbers than the Cubs. And so they would be first instead. But that wasn't the case. The Cubs won that award. I love good defense, Andy. You know, we talk about this on the show all the time. I thought that was an awesome reward that we should all be super excited about. So props to the Cubs for winning the first ever team gold glove award. And here's hoping that defense can continue 
into 2021 because I, I just have to believe that if the Cubs come into 2021 with the best defense in the league, that spells good things for them in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think 2021, obviously, there's going to be a lot of moving parts to this because our team is not going to look the same um, entirely and even beyond 2021. But I think defense definitely has to be a priority and has to be something that is um, put some emphasis on. This is a this is a very nice award. This is kind of um, a pat on the back to some of the guys that are out of position, you could say. Um, Ian Happ, who has been a really good center fielder. I hope he stays there and just continues to improve. Kyle Schwarber in left field. Obviously, you guys know how I feel about him. I just, I love this award. I think it's one that they definitely need to continue to grow on and really continue to emphasize the importance of defense um, in baseball. I mean, I, I think it, it wins you games, whether or not people choose to admit it. I think that's ultimately, you know, that's what this award is trying to state. I totally agree. And people should remember that the 2016 Cubs were a historically good defensive team. So if they can get that aspect of their game back, that will be incredible. I want to move to some less savory topics to close us out today, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the coach hirings that are currently going on around the league. I, Andy, who do you want to start with? The AJ Hinch, Alex Cora, I guess cheating doesn't matter. You can just get hired stuff or the Tony LaRusa, what is he doing managing the White Sox? And why is that just like a thing he gets to do after being charged with another DUI? I feel like you just said everything that we needed to say in a nutshell right there. <laughs> I, listen, I just want to say for once, I am just happy because I feel like, you know, I don't know. I feel like the two times that have been very emotional about for Cubs fans being in this conversation about who the next manager of the Chicago Cubs is going to be. I'm just very relieved that the controversy is not surrounding us this year. <laughs> like, Thank God we know who our manager is. He finished the top three in voting for manager of the year. So obviously it was a good pick. And we're we're we are on track to have another good season of having solid leadership you know in our dugout I cannot say the same for other teams around us like Tony LaRusa that whole I will just start there that whole thing to me is just absolutely a joke I mean the White Sox knew this all had gone down when they hired him I don't think that they knew that it was gonna it was gonna turn out like this or it was gonna it was gonna go this path I don't, I, I just can't imagine, <laughs> I I don't, I'm kind of speechless on this. Listen, this is something that I've known about for a long time. Obviously, it's not, I don't know that it gained a ton of national news when it was happening here in St. Louis, because it's something that I'm sure people did not want to discuss a whole lot. But Tony LaRusa is very well known in St. Louis for um, his drinking. And there was quite a few people higher up in in the St. Louis organization that were kind of in the same boat. And I know they had gotten a few hand smacks throughout the years, nothing crazy, nothing, you know, major league handed down or anything like that. But this is, come on, man. And to be dropping names and stuff, we're not dropping names, but dropping, you know, like I am, you know, a, a hall of famer, la, 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 whatever. I mean, this, this is just, this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing on so many levels. For baseball, obviously for Tony La Russa, for the White Sox that haven't even gotten, 
you know, him in, in involved with the whole team yet. And he's, he's got stuff like this happening. It's just, it's embarrassing. I, the quote from Jeff Passan's piece that just enraged me in my mind was the, where he looks at the officer. He's like, do you see my ring? Do you see my ring? (sighs) And I just, the amount of entitlement to believe that like it will be effective to just look at an officer and be like, do you know who I am? Do you see my ring? I was, you know, it is a a bunch of our friends on Twitter posted this. So I'm not going to attribute it to any one person because I saw it from numerous people, but that is privilege. My friends, like the idea that you're just going to be like, do you know who I am? Well, and the other thing, and I'm trying to look for it right now. Um, I love Sarah Spain and I follow her religiously. She had tweeted a while back and I'm trying to go back, but it was a few days ago. Um, Somebody had reached out to one of the young stars on the Chicago White Sox. And I can't remember exactly which one it was, but somebody had reached out to him asking how things are going with Tony La Russa. And I want to say this was before all this stuff came to light. And this young star, like I said, I'm trying to find the exact name, but she had tweeted this, had replied and said, I've not heard from Tony La Russa. I mean, that blew my mind. Like, how is that even possible? Like, it's just one thing after another. And and to me, that is also kind of showing his privilege. Like, I am who I am. I don't need to reach out to you. You know, like, that's disgusting to me. Like, I am really and this these are just two of the many, many, many examples of why he is not the best manager for this club. And I know I'm not alone in that thinking. I know that there's many White Sox fans that I've talked to that hate this hire. But there, there's just so many blatantly obvious reasons why he's not the best manager for these young players. And the fact that he hasn't even reached out to one of the young stars on this team is just absolutely I mean, I feel bad for them. Like, I really do. Because if they don't get to where they should go, I mean, I feel like this hire could be one of the reasons. I like this young White Sox team. I like Eloy Jimenez. I like Luis Robert. I like Yoan Moncada. I like Tim Anderson. I like this team. They're fun. And I like watching them. And they bat flip for days. And it's it's energetic. And I like it. And the idea that he just doesn't even think he owes them a – hey, I'm excited to be your new manager, looking forward to working with you. Let's get going in the offseason. It's just, it, it's a joke. I am I am so appalled. And, and you know what? I kind of bunched this with the AJ Hinch, Alex Cora stuff before, but it's not even remotely the same. Like Tony LaRusso's time in this game has passed. That was fundamentally true years ago. It's certainly true now. The idea that he was hired with them knowing he had been charged with the second DUI and everybody just thought, I don't know what they thought, that that was just not going to be an issue, not going to come up. And that he doesn't feel like he needs to reach out to his players. Like the White Sox should cut their losses on this one and hire a real, real manager. Like this is, this is ridiculous. This is not going to work well for the White Sox. And if I was a player, I'd be miffed. I went from having a coach who cared about me, who like was out there getting tossed for like three of the last four games because he had my back to this. Yeah. And the only thing I can say is I just really hope that the White Sox have a plan. I hope that he's brought in. I don't even know what his contract was that he signed. Um, 
it can't be terribly long because the man is is aging at a rapid pace and especially with his drinking habits the way they are i can't imagine that he would uh last too many seasons um i just mean at a at an effective manager level um it's hard to be effective when right you are engaged in heavy drinking all the time well and when you're not engaged with your young players that are the future of this club that are going to take this team the places that they haven't been in a while and I think that like I said I hope they have a plan I hope they have somebody that is going to be directly underneath him that is going to um, you know, either learn the ins and outs from him and then kind of do like a, you know, David Ross type situation, you know, use it in, in, in other ways to be able to come in and manage this team effectively. And maybe the same kind of style as Tony La Russa. But I also don't think that that's a good style for this young team. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really hope they have a plan for this. I hope there's something behind the scenes that we don't know about that they're doing to make sure that this doesn't blow up in their face because I feel like this is where it's headed. I couldn't agree with that more. And I just, you know, I, I don't want to end the show on such a down note, but I just feel like this has been a really disastrous hire for a really fun team. So whatever's going on down on the south side of Chicago, please <laughs> get your managerial house in order and reconsider on this Tony La Russa thing. It feels like a slap in the face to their fans. I mean, I follow a bunch of White Sox writers on Twitter. Our friend Janice was on the show for the Crosstown Classic. Like, White Sox writers are not happy about this. This is not like everybody's thrilled that Tony La is coming into town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know that anybody blames them, to be quite honest. I mean, even Cardinals fans are like, what is happening? <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> this is this is not okay. I mean, even Cardinals fans, and that should that should tell you something. Tony LaRusso obviously didn't leave on the best terms um, with everyone in this city. But I still just think that this is a ridiculous hire for a team that is definitely bound to be, you know, high level baseball for uh, you know a few years to come and I just hope that they decide you know whatever they need to do whether it's not you know follow the rules of Tony La Russa they do it together like at least keep the team you know I don't know just things like this tend to tend to not work out well and I just would hate to see that because there's so much talent they're so fun like you said I mean I'm I'm here for this team so much energy. They are the young faces of baseball. I love watching them. It was really fun to beat them. Um, but, you know, it's just one of those things. I had to add that in. You know, I had to add that in. Because um, I was really starting to sound like a White Sox fan. But um, it's just one of those things that you hope that a hire like this does not blow up in their face and they find a way around it. And, you know, some of the some of the chips on these guys' shoulders and some of the the edge that these guys play with, you really, I really feel like they could figure it out on their own. And, you know, he may, you know, put the starting lineup out and he may, you know, make a pitching change here and there. But hopefully everything that he stands for and what he is about and his leadership doesn't completely rub off on these guys because I don't know that it's the best to put in their, you know, line of vision right now. If the White Sox come to their senses and decide to go a different route than Tony La Russa this offseason, we will have it here on Cup of Cubby Blue 
We will have all of your Cubs news, updates, and banters as we head into the non-tender deadline, as we head into the trade season, the offseason, everything that's going on. Uh, you'll find it here first. In the meantime, you can follow us. I am at BCB underscore Sarah. Andy is at BRYZ underscore Blue. We are both at Cup of Cubby Blue, and we will be back next week with everything you need to know about the Chicago Cubs. Bye.